0: my name is valerie payne and this is the podcast binding unity i started this podcast because of a personal experience that helped me to see the need for unity in our society right now i hope that you will come along with me on my quest to find unity as we seek understanding connection healing and love Hi, this is Valerie Payne, and you're listening to another episode of Finding Unity. And today I have Brother Gerald Havlerson on, who um, has a Uh, bachelor's in um, history and then a master's in religious education um, and then another master's in American religious history. And you're currently working on your Ph.D.
1: Right. And also in American religious history. Okay. I emphasize... uh, Anti religious rhetoric. So I study all the hateful things that people say to one another to try to rob them of faith. A uh, lot of anti Mormonism and anti Semitism and anti Catholicism. And it's not very uplifting material, but I hope to put it to good use in terms of helping people navigate the challenges to faith that they experience.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And I guess, do you want to just kind of give a background of? Because um, I know you didn't grow, you're didn't. you currently in Utah, um, working at the Institute with the University of Utah. Mm-hmm. So how did you end up in Utah? Because you're not originally from here.
1: Great question. So I grew up in Southern California, uh, born in the San Diego area, and then spent seven years in Texas, and then spent most of my teenage years in Los Angeles, and loved the experience there. I actually prefer being a religious minority, to be honest. I think it opens our eyes to the good that is outside of our community. I think it keeps you on your toes. I think it gives you opportunity to articulate articulate your faith and understand it in different ways and to learn how to listen and speak in such a way that you're keeping an eye out or an ear out for how you'll be heard and not just what you're, what you're saying. Uh, most of my friends in LA were members of other faiths and I loved that. I spoke at a Catholic church in high school for an interfaith experience and that was my first real chance to, to dive in. Uh, I, I loved it. And to see, in fact, it's been interesting in the last few years to reconnect with a lot of my old high school friends and realize just how diverse we were religiously and then simultaneously just how devout we all were. In our various religions. So as I headed off to BYU, the, the LDS school, my several several of my best friends headed off to Notre Dame. Uh, and not just because they had a good football team. It, w- it was because they were very staunch Catholics and wanted to have a, a religious aspect to their education and Jewish friends and Hindu friends. And I just loved that kind of diversity in Los Angeles. Uh, go from the great diversity of L.A. to the, the lack thereof of Provo, Utah as, <laughs> as a freshman in college. Uh, and yet it was an amazing experience to really deepen my own religious roots within my own faith community. Uh, I then served a mission in Puerto Rico for two years and absolutely loved learning and experiencing the the perspectives that other people had and to recognize that we don't have a monopoly on much uh, and that there's just goodness there. I came home from my mission and taught at the MTC for several years and loved that experience. And just, I wanted to spend my life teaching uh, and specifically teaching religion. That had always been an interest to me even when i didn't think that there was a a professional life available uh, with that interest but I was hired by the church to begin teaching seminary. I did that, uh, so I, I was—I'd graduated from BYU, I was hired and got my first assignment in Utah County. And so I taught seminary at a high school in Highland for six years, and then taught a year at BYU in the religion department. And there, from there, I really wanted to pursue uh, advanced degrees. I had a master's, but wanted a different kind of PhD outside of, of Mormondom, outside the Wasatch Front, and so the church sent me to Nashville, Tennessee, and thankfully the program at Vanderbilt was, I had been looking at programs at Harvard and Yale and Stanford and UCLA and Georgetown, and, and this one was better than the ones that I had envisioned for myself. It was one of those times where I prayed later, thank you God for not listening to me, and dove into the program at Vanderbilt and, and absolutely loved the religious diversity that was there. It was fascinating to be a Latter-day Saint in the middle of the Bible Belt, there are, so many st- st- there are so many cities in the South that vie for the title of buckle of the Bible Belt, but there's only one that also claims the title of the Protestant Vatican, and that's Nashville, the headquarters of the Southern Baptists and the United Methodists. And, and to be in such a rich religious environment, and specifically to be at a divinity school where people loved religion, they knew their stuff, they wanted to talk about it, but were also open-minded enough to understand other people's perspectives. It was just a fascinating experience for me. They had interfaith worship services every week that I would attend religiously, to the point that the dean of the divinity school even pointed it out and said, "We were really surprised that a Latter-day Saint would be such a faithful attender of an interfaith. You guys are kind of isolationists, uh, not ecu- ecumenists." And I and I was saddened by that. I thought, why can't we be more involved with, with the people of other faiths to rejoice together, to learn from one another. I was there for eight years, uh, in Nashville and loved my, my time and experiences there. And then the church said, you know, we could use you back in Utah, uh, specifically at the university of Utah, which kind of surprised me that that's where I was being sent. And yet when I told my wife that we were going to head, heading back to Utah and that I would be at the University of Utah, uh, she must have sensed a little bit of my trepidation. And, and she laughed and said, honey, you study intellectual anti-Mormonism. You get to go to the epicenter. You're living the dream. <laughs> and it has been that way. It's felt like an away game rather than a home game. But it's felt like home in that respect. My, most of my life has been an away game. Yeah. And to be able to have great conversations, do a lot of interfaith work here at the University of Utah as evangelical student groups from around the country have come that I've hosted and introduced to our Latter-day Saints students here, uh, to have interfaith experiences with the campus community at the University of Utah that are not Latter-day Saints, and even to be invited over to the, for example, several times to come over to the College of Social Work to try to explain some uh, Latter-day Saint perspectives to people that are going to be working in a a highly concentrated LDS community. And invited typically once a semester to go speak in the communications department about interfaith dialogue uh, based on my experiences in that field. And so it's just been a, a rich opportunity to deepen my understanding of other people and and connect with people in meaningful ways I, i'm grateful to be here
0: that's awesome. So um, I kind of wanted to just back up with Nashville because mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to do a training um, for therapy out there oh, in Johnson City. So it wasn't Nashville, cool. yeah. but in Tennessee. Yeah. And I did love the people there. It's yeah. it's a very different feeling from Los Angeles yes. anyway. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you because you mentioned um, that someone you spoke with there said, oh, members of your faith are is- like isolated or are yeah. more. Um, what do you think about why do people have that perception of us as members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And, um, just to kind of help people listening who maybe are members or Mm -hmm. maybe who aren't help like us bridge that gap.
1: Great question. I think in some ways they have that perception of us because we've given it to them. Uh, we've, we've brought that upon ourselves and originally for a good reason. There, there was a theological reason. There was a sociological reason. The theological side was the, the spirit of gathering or the principle of gathering. In the Old Testament, we speak of the, the diaspora and the scattering of Israel uh, that as the Assyrians come in or the Babylonians come in and scatter people. But the Old Testament is full of this talk of the gathering of Israel as well. And as the Latter-day Saint church was organized, that idea of gathering, it wasn't a matter of, you go be a Latter-day Saint wherever you happen to live. It was if you find value in this theology, if you if you feel that this is God's people, then come and and join the group. Gather to a specific gathering place, and so originally that gathering place was New York, and then it became Ohio, and then it became Missouri, and then it became Illinois, and and then it became Utah, and that wasn't all by choice. Uh, the, the the concept of gathering theologically was a choice. It was a doctrine that we that Latter-day Saints found grounded in scripture. But moving from one gathering place to the next, there's the sociological perspective in that there was concern among the surrounding communities, particularly politically in early America where so much was the tyranny of the majority. Well, to have Latter-day Saints quickly becoming a majority in an area that raised some political concerns for the people, the old time inhabitants, and also the sense of religious difference it was an issue particularly in 19th century america that you have it's a disestablished church was a new thing and so even though there was no official religion in majority rules america protestantism was the official unofficial religion of the united states and so latter day saints just were not welcome uh for good reasons and not so good reasons and so they get kicked out from one place to the next to the next to the next and you end up, you get persecuted often enough and you end up with a certain level of victim mentality, which is good in terms of trying to protect yourself, but bad in terms of becoming a good neighbor. I think it's interesting, even if you look at the architecture of the historic temples built in Utah, if you were to take the spires off, they all look like battlements. And so there is this sense of kind of fortress Mormondom uh, and you're not. We don't. We're not going to let you drive us out again, kind of a thing. Uh, this sense early on uh, in the Utah period of Latter-day Saints versus everyone else. The fact that that like Jews, we refer to non-Mormons as Gentiles. that, that there's a specific word for every other that is not a Latter-day Saint. That's problematic, I think, especially in today's pluralistic society. But I think it was justified at the time period for because of all that they had gone through. We no longer build temples that look like battlements. I think that's a good sign that our architecture is reflecting more of local environments mm-hmm. and, and opening those doors in temple open houses. And, and I think we're becoming much better neighbors Uh, which is an important part of being better disciples.
0: Yeah. So how did you then find unity with these people when you were in Nashville, Tennessee, in the Bible Belt? How were you able to find unity with them? And then also just like unity within your own faith through getting all of that Uh, anti-literature that you received?
1: I, I think in some ways it's easy or easier to find unity within your own faith when there is opposition around you. I sometimes, as I've worked with interfaith groups, I sometimes use Google Maps as the analogy that as you zoom in or zoom out on a Google Map, borders either appear or disappear. And I think that's interesting that the closer you get to something, then all of a sudden a new border appears that you didn't see before. But if you'll back up, then that border disappears. you'll see a bigger picture. You no longer see county lines because you're looking at state lines. You no longer see state lines. You're now looking at the outlines of continents and so on. And zooming in on Latter-day Saints, there is a sense of solidarity when you're not a sizable part of the community. You have each other. You really do have a a sense of family. And so that came easily in Los Angeles. It came easily in Tennessee. It actually is harder to find in Utah. Because you are the majority, and, and you don't seem to huddle together for warmth uh, when, 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 you don't, when you don't need to. On the other hand, being in Tennessee was such a blessing of feeling more unified with people of other faiths, some of that was just putting myself out there, of, of going and being a part of things. That was easy to do at a divinity school. At one point, I was teaching a class on campus to the Latter-day Saint population on world religions. And rather than me teach a day on Catholicism, I brought the Catholic pri- the campus Catholic priest to explain his faith. And rather than me explain Islam through a Latter-day Saint lens, I had a friend in my classes. We worked together at the Divinity Library. He was a Turkish Muslim. And I said, would you mind coming and explaining your faith? I would love for my students to hear it from an expert and from an adherent. Uh, Christer Stendhal, the great Harvard Divinity School dean, in his list of rules for interfaith discussion. One of them was hear it from believers, hear it from insiders, rather than from outsiders. You'll get a truer perspective on things. And so I wanted to follow that. And then again, putting myself out there in terms of visiting other churches, not just the interfaith experiences or the non-denominational worship services we had at the Divinity School, but going to specific denominational services at a friend's church and and I think it, sometimes it's a matter of us just choosing to step outside ourselves and see the good or give ourselves the opportunity to see the good. And you can't help but see it once you get in those environments where, where it's so visible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And kind of what you were saying about... Um it's easier to huddle when you have less members. I even found in Los Angeles, I was huddling more with people of faith of multiple different religions, mm. but just people of faith because yeah. that was hard for me. Um, and so I guess I wanna ask how, how would you, like or what advice do you have in, in finding unity for maybe people who are not of faith?
1: That's a great question. In fact, back to that Google Earth analogy, if you zoom in on Protestantism for example there are so many borders that appear where all of a sudden it's now Methodist versus Baptist versus Presbyterians but even if you zoom in on Baptist well is this Southern Baptist or American Baptist you know is this more liberal or more conservative branches of these various denominations if you zoom out Protestantism will all coalesce in opposition to Catholicism often the border appears when you have a new other you zoom out again And Catholics and Protestants will all coalesce around Christianity because there's Jews or Muslims in the room. Well, I think the ultimate final zoom out is when all people of faith coalesce and what's the new other that has forced a a disappearance of all these internal borders? People that have no faith at all. Now there is a difference between having no faith and being Mm -hmm. anti-faith. There's atheism and then there's antitheism if that's even a word you know or, or am i okay with with that difference or am i in opposition to it there's actually an interesting book uh, called Faiththeist, which has to do with interfaith dialogue between people of no belief and people of belief and that took my oh i'd like to i sometimes like to see myself as a very and as an incredibly open-minded and open-hearted and i think that i am and the and by nature and by upbringing and by experience i think i have evidence that i'm that kind of person i'm grateful for that but this was a test because you know, so much of what i study with anti-religious rhetoric it really is a sense of oppositionality and and an attack mentality and so here i am reading about an atheist who wants to have interfaith dialogue. And I really enjoyed the read. It was a good test, a good nudge that my borders were still too small. And maybe the real final zoom out is recognizing that we're all fellow human beings. And even if some, I mean, the, our sense of ultimate realities are different. I mean, you want to talk about disagreeing on a on a substantive, significant, core belief. There you have it. And yet, are there other beliefs that we have in common? Are there still shared goals? Is there a shared humanity? Definitely. Mm-hmm. And we can agree on those things.
0: I love that. I love what you said on that thought of like backing out and how we always kind of create this sense of an other. Um, without meaning to, we mm-hmm. just do. And so I'm wondering where that's coming from and like a thought for me anyway just being a therapist and from my background is I feel like we have a lot of cognitive distortions and thinking errors and I know for me sometimes when I feel this sense of other it's because I feel alone really Mm. that's where it's coming from so I guess I wonder I know the goal is for us to come together and sometimes it's tricky when people have such like anti for example if someone's anti to my religion how how can I find unity with them What would you say, I guess, or what advice on that?
1: You're really going to have to want to, right? Yeah. It's some unities come naturally, others are going to be much more intentional. Mm -hmm. And I think often it's a matter of digging down to the absolute core what are your premises and what are your conclusions? What are your goals? It's interesting. You see this in politics all the time where there is such partisanship and such just rancor. There, there's hardly anyone is finds themselves able to reach across the political aisle. And yet, down deep, their goals are so similar. They just have very different means to arrive at them. And I think if the two sides were able to talk about what are your goals? What are the aims? What are the ends here? We'd have so much more... In common, mm-hmm. then it's a matter of how are you arriving at those ends? What means are you using? Now I may be totally opposed to the other person's means, and vice versa. But if I can recognize the nobility of their ends or the shared goals, uh, then we have something to build on it that's in common. There are again the difference between premises and conclusions. We tend to fight over conclusions all the time without doing the homework of drilling down to the premises out of which those conclusions arise. And I think if we get down to con- to premises, then we can agree to disagree and think, oh, your conclusions make total sense within your worldview. I hope that you'll return the favor and recognize that my conclusions also make sense within mine. I've often used the analogy of it doesn't make much sense for a football player and a soccer player to fight over the use of hands. If they don't realize that they're playing two different sports, yeah. and I think once you realize, oh, we we see the world differently, mm-hmm. and but you're playing the game within your rules, as am I, and perhaps there's a way then to cheer one another on. It does become more difficult when there's only one field that you two that two sport that the two athletes are trying to share. Mm-hmm. That might have to come. You might have to come up with a new game or some different rules. Uh, but I but I think again there are within any perspective, there are there is an opportunity to see truth and find value and things that you agree on.
0: I love that, yeah, looking at, we all do have the same ultimate goal, but yeah, I love what you said, we just all have different ways of arriving there, and I think right. that's where the conflict is. So, exactly. yeah, I love that. Um, And then kind of going on that, I think sometimes as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or of any faith, sometimes it's hard when we have friends who have left the church and finding that balance between loving them and of course inviting them in our lives but then also that tricky balance of like feeling like we don't want to condone things that are against our beliefs. What advice do you have on like finding unity with these people who maybe who have left the church but also being true and finding unity with ourselves? Right,
1: right. The parable of the prodigal son has so many insights into that exact issue. I find it interesting that you see these three different characters in the parable and there's one that leaves and there's one that really wants him to come home and then there's one that really doesn't. So there's the the prodigal son himself, there's the father and there's the older brother. And to see which one we are at any given time, I find it interesting that the father does not follow the prodigal son to that distant country. There are certain places he just can't go but he is always vigilant, looking for any potential way to connect with that son. And when he sees him returning from a distance, he does leave home. He can't, again, can't go all the way, but is there some middle ground where I can meet you? I think also the turning point for the prodigal son is the phrase in Luke 15 that he came to himself, that he realized, is there a better way or is there a change I want to make right away? Even if I don't come back to faith, can I come back to family? And the first thought he has after coming to himself is of home. And it's a positive thought. He feels that he's burned certain bridges. He he assumes that I could never be my father's son again, but I could be his servant and my father really treats the servants well. This is a good homeowner, a good landlord, a a good father. And so I'm sure he'll at least accept me on that level. Well, he underestimated his father but at least had a positive feeling towards him and i think sometimes there are places that we can go with those who are wayward and other places we simply can't we need to be true to them but also true to ourselves as you wisely said i think though we can do a lot to make sure that if they if and when they ever think of home will the accompanying emotions be positive or negative if we were trying to get that last word in edgewise or one last dig on their way out, then we've kind of slammed the door and ruined opportunities for later returning. Whereas if we can leave them with love, if they always know the moment I think of home, I know I'll be welcome there, then when they do come to themselves, they'll know that they can come home. Uh, We need to act a lot more like the father and a lot less like the elder brother Mm -hmm. when someone decides to leave us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think sometimes, um, I don't know, just what you said about having that conversation and, and having it come from a place of love. Let's just give an example of, yeah. let's mm-hmm. say, drinking hot chocolate, which is nothing against our belief, but <laughs> let's, let's make it a stream. Let's just say that's offensive to you for whatever reason. If you come from a place of love and explain it to whoever that drinking hot chocolate is offensive to you, I think if it's coming from love, the other person will respect you, even if they think it's crazy. They can yeah. think it's crazy, but they'll love you enough to to not drink hot chocolate if it's offensive to you. Um, so I, would, I, think, I would
1: agree with that. I, I think having real open conversation... And giving as much love as you hope to receive and to explain your openness with love, your standards with love, and really come together on something of how much middle ground can we find, how much can I compromise, and how much can you as the other party? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, there, is there a stand that means a lot to me and means a lot less to you? And so, you might be the other person might be more willing to give a little bit more in that particular area, and vice versa with someone else. I, I've, in, as I've tried to train groups on interfaith work, I often use an elephant as the analogy because one of the great things about elephants is the size of their ears, they're just massive. And evolutionarily, why do the elephants have such big ears? You want to talk about major surface area to allow heat to dissipate when you're on the African savannah or the Indian jungle. Flap your ears out and you have massive amounts of surface area where all this heat can rise. And I think there's a great principle there that when it starts, when conversations start to get heated, then listen more. Just really open those ears. Listen. Try to understand where the other person is coming from. And as you do so, that tension seems to evaporate. You're not looking to get a word in edgewise. You're just trying to understand where the other person is coming from. And then two other elements about the, the the elephant, tusks are sharp and feet are big. And especially when you're the majority or when you're the one that can, you know, you're the parent in the situation or it's your home that we're talking about and you are the elephant in the room, you can storm through and stomp anyone down and, and hurl them away with your tusks. Boy, do you have to be careful with that. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is elephants also have very thick skin, knowing that, Other elephants also have sharp tusks and big feet. And so I think from my side of things, I cannot control the other party, whether that's a family member, whether that's someone of an other faith, whether it's someone that's attacking my faith. I cannot control the thickness of their skin, but I can control my own tusks and feet. In other words, I can choose not to be offensive. And then they're not gonna be put in a position where they have to get defensive. And then vice versa, I can't control how careful they might or might not be with their tusks and feet, but I can control largely the thickness of my own skin. And so if I choose not to be defensive, not to get offended, then they can be as mean as they want. And again, this might test my mettle on this, but I can simply choose to respond in kindness and love. And I think the more that we develop both of those attributes, I guess all of those attributes of the elephant, will be safe and so will they as they hopefully see the benefit of that example and want to follow it in their way.
0: Yeah. No, nope, I think that's great. I love the example of the elephant. Um, I Kind of going along with that thought, um, I know you really like, you encourage students to ask tough questions. So maybe if there are things that are um, they're doctrinally struggling with. Um, how has that been helpful for you in just having students ask you these questions and how have you been able to find unity with them through that?
1: Well, it's been helpful to me because now I know what people wonder. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's the first time you get asked a question, sometimes it might blindside you and you think, wow, I, that's never crossed my mind or I didn't understand that doubt or I, I've never considered that. It gives you lots of good homework to do. So, in terms, I, I very seldom wonder, "Ah, what should I think about, or what should I study?" It's just based on the last conversation I had. and these are and and then, the more often you have those kind of blindsided experiences, then the less often you get blindsided by them because you've grappled with them before. You've read that or you've seen that, you've had those conversations. But I think more than anything, how to especially how to find unity with them is to f- see the person behind the question. Mm-hmm. There is, there are certain questions that always seem to come up. And like I said, once you've heard it once, you keep hearing it over and over. But what's unique is the person asking the question. And to find unity with them, it, there's usually a story behind the question. There is, it's not just a cognitive lapse. It's not it's just I'm missing something. This isn't just ignorance that we're trying to combat. This is experiential. I think often I'll, someone will ask me a question, and before I dig into the, the answer, or even the discussion, if there isn't an answer, I'll sometimes ask, that's a great question. Why do you have it? Or where did it come from? And just to, because then there's a story. Mm-hmm. Very rare does someone have a question that is purely historical or purely doctrinal. Because most people aren't historians or theologians. I mean, if it is purely historical, my eyes light up. Like, wow, you care about history as much as I do? This is (laughs) awesome, right? Let's talk historian to historian. And same with theology. But most people are living their lives, and that's what matters most to them, and for good reason. And so when they bump up against some theological issue or some historical concern, it's usually a concern because it butts up against personal experience. And so again, to flap those ears out and to open them wide and tell me more about what you're going through and about your experience and what is it that's driving the question. There is typically a very personal reason behind it because there's a person behind it. And to be able to see that person is some of the most rewarding experiences I have, even if it's a hard question, an angry question. I've often said, in fact, I talked to with a student earlier today uh, that I'd never met, uh, but, but a mutual friend put us together and I said, I'm here for you, whether you want to talk, whether you want to vent, even if you just need a good pair of shins to kick, I'm here for you. And to see the person behind the, the, the issue and to listen to them.
0: That's awesome. I I love that because I feel like one of the mission, my mission statement behind this podcast is to um, find unity through seeking understanding, healing, connection, Beautiful. and love. And I feel like um, that really shows the seeking understanding and the love well, and connection component of it. You're you're not just judging them based on the question, but you're really trying to understand where that question's coming from. Yeah. So I love that. In fact,
1: that. the way you just said that, Valerie, thank you. Uh, St. Anselm was an 11th century Christian theologian who coined the phrase, faith-seeking understanding. Hmm. And for him, it was an intellectual pursuit. It was, I have faith in certain principles, and now I want to understand them better. So I'm gonna search and I'm gonna study. And I do a lot of that and encourage my students to do a lot of that themselves, especially if they're in faith crisis. There was faith at one point, now seek a better understanding. It's like what Peter says, to give a reason for the hope that is in you. I already have the hope. Now I'm trying I'm seeking a reason behind it something that makes sense more logically. But I love the the purpose statement the the objective that you described that's a different kind of understanding. That's not cognitive. That's relational. Mm-hmm. And I I think yeah this is a new thought for me so thank you for spurring it. I I wonder if I I don't think Anselm would turn over in his grave if I if I twisted his statement just enough. To add the relational aspect of understanding. And so people of faith particularly, I hope we are people of faith seeking understanding. Not just to understand our own beliefs better, which is what Ansel meant, but to understand other people. Yeah. And their perspectives. So because too often all we have is our faith and we use it as as a hammer to destroy other people's faith. Whereas if we are holding to faith, but seeking understanding with others, what a better world we'll have.
0: Right. The scriptures say it's not good for man to be alone. And when we isolate ourselves from other faiths, we're doing that. So love that. Um, Thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. Something I like to always ask on my podcast um, when I meet with people is, what does unity mean to you? So I just want to leave with that question. What does unity mean to you?
1: Oh, that's a great question. There is in our tradition. There is a scripture from, called the Doctrine and Covenants, and there's a verse, and I think it's in section 38, where the Lord says, "If you are not one, you are not mine." And I, there's something about unity there and belonging there, and so if we want to belong to God, we need to make sure everyone else feels a sense of belonging too. That there needs to be a oneness. If if we ever hope to have a hisness, if there's even a word for that, to, if I want, I think we can reverse it. If you are not one, you are not mine. And at the same time, then, if you're not mine, you'll never really be one. And so I think unity is a sense of that belonging, of recognizing who we are and whose we are, and that the person across the table belongs and deserves that same sense themselves.
0: Great. I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you so much again for being on. I appreciate it's been
1: my it. pleasure. Thank you, Valerie. Thank
0: you. Remember that it's okay to disagree. Unity comes when we can agree to disagree while still maintaining a love for one another. For more on Unity, follow us on Instagram at finding.unity or on Twitter at finding underscore unity.